Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. So good to be here. I I am uh, excited for this particular message, but I have a couple of pastoral quick conversations just to get everyone on the same page. Um, First of all, uh, we, my first note is, oh, I wanted to answer this question. A lot of new people have come in and they're like, why, why don't you preach every week? Um, why do you have so many different people rotating preaching? And I, I wanted to tell you that there's a theological reason and it's something that's also a countercultural reason. Number one is I believe that the Bible teaches that we should be using our gifts as the body and so that um, we, there are lots of teachers that are here and a part of our community that we should empower to teach. It's not just one person. The second reason, culturally, is we build churches around personalities rather than Jesus. And when we started the garden, I felt a deep conviction that I wouldn't be the only teacher um, because it would be very easy for us to build a church around a personality rather than Jesus. And so we will have lots of teachers. And one of the things I've been doing this last year is actually I host a preaching class where I am raising up preachers of the garden and future preachers of churches because we believe that we will be a church planning church. We are a church planning church. And so one of the things that we have to do is create space for young preachers and teachers to learn and develop their craft and their ability to teach. And we have to allow them to do that here because that's one of our roles as a church. Not every church will be a church planning church. That is the mantle that we get to carry as, as a church uniquely. So, so we'll have lots of preachers for that reason. Is that okay? But if you, want, if you want to go to a church that has one guy, um, there are other churches that do that. And we, we appreciate the, the voices of many. Um, so that's one thing. The second thing is you've heard whispers of this thing called house churches. Some of you have heard us talk about this. Yes? A couple of us. And I hear there's whispers and rumors about what it's, what's going on. What's the deal with house churches? Okay. So I want to just give you a quick view. Um, from the moment we started our church, um, we knew that we would organize around small groups. We've always done that. We said that the primary place to be the church is in homes, not just on Sundays. And so when we were 12, we organized around, we called them back then life groups, and then they became missional communities. Is somebody building something outside? That's amazing. Um, okay, across the street. Welcome to our venue. Um, uh, and so we, maybe you could shut the outer doors because that's going to get me. Um, just like Sunday morning construction. Uh, so we build, uh, we call them community groups, missional communities, garden groups. And so after this round of garden groups, we're going to pause garden groups. And in the fall, we're going to launch, launch house churches. Now, does that mean we're going to stop meeting on Sundays? No, we're going to keep meeting on Sunday mornings, okay? We're not getting rid of Sunday gatherings at all. We're going to continue Sunday gatherings. But our conviction is that when we look in the scriptures and we see what the Bible says about the church, and then we see what church has become across the landscape of the United States, we're really missing some significant things. We're missing some, if you were to say, build a church just using the language of the Bible, you wouldn't see PowerPoints necessarily, or 45-minute sermons, um, or kids ministry, or parking ministry, or you know, donuts and coffee. But the moment we take any of those things away, we would be upset. But the Bible actually says, love one another. 
Bear with one another. Share all of your resources, not 10%, everything. So when we look at the scripture, and I can, I'm, I'm being convicted at what the scriptures teach. So it's almost like we have to go back and start over. And that's what we're doing with house churches. We're creating an environment that will shape followers of Jesus into Christ-likeness. And so we just want to get really good at doing what the Bible says we should be good at, <laughs> which is making disciples. And so we're going to launch house churches that will multiply house churches in the fall. Um, and, and my friend Francis Chan has been a huge gift. He's been coming and equipping our leaders in this. He spoke prophetically to us about this in February, and it just convicted our staff and our elders and the eldership and our staff and the leaders. We're all on the same page on this. We're like, yeah, we have something that's going really well. Garden groups have been amazing this year. More people involved than ever before in communities. But in the, some way along the, somewhere along the way, God just said something like, go back to the scriptures and look at what Jesus commands and try that. So that's what we're going to try to do. Does that sound okay? So we're not giving up Sunday mornings. We're going to launch house churches. We want everyone that says they're part of the garden to be a part of the house churches in the fall. There will be way more clarity and uh, information about this when we launch it. We'll do a whole series that will help us understand what we're doing come fall. Sound good? Just want to like alleviate any tension that was there about that. Lastly, um, just a quick disclaimer. This, this conversation right now is PG-13. So if you don't want to have unnecessary conversations with little ones and they're in the room, I don't know if they are, um, I just want to give you permission. You can walk out and leave because we are going to talk about sex and a variety of things that the scriptures talk about. Does that sound okay? Okay, so you got the disclaimer. Let's pray as I open up the word. Um, Lord, I, I just invite you now to, to speak to us. Um, pray, God, that you would be, um, that you would just give me wisdom and clarity and conviction and power to preach your word this morning. Pray, Lord, I would uh, just do well of the text. And I pray as a church that we would steward your word and uh, live our lives in response to your word. And I thank you for this word. So I bless our, our, my, my brothers and sisters and I pray that we would just um, be open to your spirit in Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you have a Bible, we're in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter five, so go to five and just hold that there. Um, we are making our way through the letter of Ephesians written by a guy named Paul. He was a missionary, an apostle, a church planner. He writes this letter 2,000 years ago and he writes to a group of people that were living in what would be modern day Turkey. Um, and he writes to house churches, 20, 30 people gathered in homes, scattered throughout the Roman Empire. And um, he's writing that to them um, to help remind them of what they've given their lives to and who it is they've given their lives to and why it's important to live a life um, worthy of the calling that they've received in Christ. And so they, in Ephesus, are struggling with all sorts of issues that are specific to their culture and context. For example, I just want to give us a quick backdrop. Some of you are familiar with this. Ephesus was the epicenter of Artemis worship. Here's a picture of Artemis from 2,000 years ago. This is the statue of Artemis, who is a combination of two different gods, Kibbola and Dionysus, and she was the god of fertility, a god of small animals. She was a wealth god, prosperity, and she was the, the most popular god that was worshipped in Ephesus at the time. In fact, um, uh, Ephesus was about 250,000 people, and once a year for the festival called Artemision, a million people would come to the city, and they would, they would worship Artemis. 
men um, who wanted devoted themselves to, to Artemis would castrate themselves and throw their parts on the statue. Um, this, this is just uninhibited worship. Uh, the way you would connect with the God of Artemis in the first century was through temple prostitution. So Artemis had this, this paradigm, this, this worldview of sexual promiscuity and freedom. If you're wealthy, you had sex slaves and multiple wives. So sex was a big deal in Ephesus in the first century. It was a, the primary way you accessed worshiping the primary God of Ephesus. Are you with me? So there were all sorts of pagan gods, other statues to other gods throughout Ephesus. You would walk around and you'd see these statues and these temples dedicated to the various gods. And to the first century Ephesian, this was one ordinary and two, this rep, these gods represented their cultural worldview and cultural narratives of how the world worked and operated. So the gods weren't just statues and idols to these, this, to these random gods that had supernatural powers. They represented how the world actually worked. So you have these statues and temples dedicated to the various gods, much like we have billboards or advertisements today. So here's some example. I was driving in LA. And I was like, wow, there are so many billboards. But we have various billboards that represent idols and gods and powers in our lives. Would you agree? Like buying homes and owning a home has this pull towards, uh, to, in our lives, especially in Southern California. Like to arrive is to own a home for some reason. At least we might not believe that, but the American dream involves a white picket fence, does it not? And then th there are other um, narratives that we follow. Like, do you, do, I mean, we're, we're, some of us are older. Do we know what this is? Snapchat, it's a form of social media. So, but, but social media, also with all the advertisements, I mean, I can look on Amazon at a pair of shoes and my Facebook feed has all sorts of, of the same exact shoes that I just searched on Amazon. Is that strange that our social media is curating the identity, the values, the dreams, the consumer-oriented needs we create in our in our feed. Isn't that fascinating? So these, uh, and there are a couple more I just put up here. Like here's a fascinating one. Is this sex is obviously a way, I don't know if that's real or not, but I found it. I'm like, that's exactly what, what all billboards are saying at the end of the day. Are they not? They draw our attention. They, they pull us into a new narrative, like to own a home or to drive that nice car. Is draw, it's drawing us towards something. It's moving us. And of course, there's good billboards out there. Um, <laughs> It's an old one. So we're moved. <laughs> we're moved by, and for those listening on podcasts, that's a Star Wars billboard. You're welcome. Um, the wor so it works in the same way. We are being influenced by these cultural narratives. Our culture is shaping us. And we might not have statues or temples, but I would argue we actually do. They just look differently. And we don't call them gods, but they are. Fashion Island is a temple dedicated to the consumerism and materialism of American way of life. Would you just pause there and just think about that for a moment? So in the first century, though, the church looked different than it does today. The church uh, was new to Christianity in the first century, and it didn't have a culture of Christianity or a church culture, you could say, like we do today, where you could actually be a Christian and look exactly like the rest of the world. There, that's a problem, but that was a problem that Paul actually challenges in the first century. It just looked different. In fact, churches look different. If you were Jewish in the first century and you became Christian, your church would look like a synagogue. 
It would look like the Jewish form of worship and gathering. In Greco-Roman world, where Ephesus is located, they were Hellenized, um, Greek culture influenced them. If you, were, if you were influenced by Roman culture and you gathered in homes, you would normally only gather in homes for something called symposium, which translates from Latin, drinking parties. So in first century Ephesus, whenever you would gather in homes and alcohol was available, however moderate it was, whether alcohol level, the level of alcohol, you would drink to get drunk. There was no such thing as moderation in that time period. Symposium, the whole point of the gathering was to get drunk because to get drunk was to, be, was to worship various gods, Dionysus being one of, one of them, Artemis, and Baca. So you gathered in homes in symposiums to get drunk, which is why Paul in Corinth will say, guys, when you're taking communion, don't get drunk off the communion wine. They didn't know any better. They came out of a culture where this is what they did. They didn't see a moral issue with it. And and later on in Ephesians, Paul will say, hey, brothers and sisters, um, don't get drunk off wine, which leads to debauchery, but instead be filled with the Spirit. In other words, only be influenced by the power of the Holy Spirit. Not in any other influence. Not the, and I, I would go on to argue that today you would say, don't, don't be influenced by media and technology. Don't be influenced by consumerism, materialism. Don't be influenced by the approval of others. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Although he, I would argue alcohol is the same. And weed. And any other form of drug that will have the ability to influence you. And it just got serious. So Paul is writing to a group of Christians that didn't know how to live because all they did all, this is all new to them. So he, he writes to Christians in Ephesus that, and they're surrounded in a culture of alcohol and sex, false idols, um, false gods and Roman propaganda and narratives, pagan practices. They're indulging in all sorts of appetites and pleasure and consumption, lying, cheating and living for themselves and all sorts of other activities. So for Paul to be Christian is to live a countercultural life. So we get to the book of Ephesians and Paul writes this letter as a way to circulate to other churches how to live. Part one of the book of Ephesians, this is what Jesus has done for you. This is who you are. You're saved. You're adopted. Um, He brings you into his family. He loves you. You're saved through grace, by faith, uh, or by grace, through faith, excuse me. We have a new identity. And then in chapter four, verse one, he transitions and he says, look, first three chapters, you can't do anything God's done at all. Now in view of God doing everything, live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Live your life in view of who you already are. You are holy, so live your life as holy. You are a saint, so be a saint. Are you with me? I just want to make a quick note. This is what separates Christianity from all other religions. This one idea. All other religions say, hey, you've got to get your act together. You've got to be acceptable and pleasing before you meet with the divine. Jesus starts off your journey by saying, you are acceptable. You are forgiven. You are righteous. You are my son. You don't have to do anything. In view of that, now live out of who you already are. This is what separates all other world religions from Christianity. This is the gospel. Now, with that, Paul will say, we have to live appropriately. Like Bill said the other day, you've been adopted into royalty. Learn how to use the spoon. It's a brilliant line. It wrecked me. So Paul will say, take off the old self and put on the new self. Are you with me? So we're, gonna, we're, we're in the, the second part where Paul is telling us now how to live in view of the cultural reality and norms that we've been immersed in. So these are alternative ways of living. So that's all summary. Ephesians 5 verse 1. It says this. 
Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So Paul's now new ethical, moral way to live, the standard of living as Christians is to imitate God. However God has treated you in Christ, Christians should treat each other the same way. Does that seem like a high standard? Yes. Did you hear what I just said? However God has treated you in Christ, act that way to other people. That's fascinating. And the word that he uses in Greek is this word for imitate, which is connected to these, this training method. And teachers of rhetoric declared that there were three ways of learning oratory skills, depending on your, your view. They said there are three ways, theory, imitation, and practice. And so if you were studying under a teacher 2,000 years ago, they would study and imitate their, the masters that have gone before them. They were practicing what the masters did. They would, they would train under their masters and mimic their very move, uh, way of doing it. It's like discipleship. They would learn from their rabbi. They would copy their rabbi. They would dress like their rabbi. They would talk like their rabbi. They would sleep like their rabbi. They would be in relationship and eat like their rabbi. That was the goal. The goal was imitation. And Paul is Jewish and he was a rabbi and discipled many people. And he says in the church, we are to imitate God and to live a life of love. This is the example that Christ gave us, to, to live a life that was self-sacrificial, which is the very nature of God. So that's our new standard. Are you with me? But then he goes off and he gives us specific things that Ephesus was dealing with 2,000 years ago. And I want you to pay attention to this because I think we can relate to these specific three things. Um, and he says this in verse three. Let's read uh, verse three through seven together, verses three. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Now should there be, a, uh, nor should there be any obscenity, foolish talk or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. For of this, you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person as an idolater, has in any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things, God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore, do not be partners with them. It's pretty hard. And this is where it gets very fascinating to me, where Paul writes specific things um, to his church, and these are for Christians. Now, this passage, let me just say, this passage is not for people who are in Christ, they, they have confessed Jesus as Lord, and they're struggling with sin. That's not what he's referring to. Paul's not referring to those of us that believe in Jesus, that are trying to live this out, and we continually fail or make mistakes along the journey. This passage is for those that are in the church that have said, yes, I believe in Christ, and continue to live the way culture lives. Did you hear me? He's identifying cultural norms and realities and worldviews. And he's saying, in Christ, you can be in Christ and continue to struggle with sin. That's part of our sanctification process. Nobody here is perfect. In fact, if you think that anyone here has figured it out, you're wrong. We're all struggling our way into holiness. Does that make sense? But he's referring to a mindset that does away with anything that has to do with becoming more like Jesus. So, we, we can't just, because here's what we've done in Christianity. We talk about works-based and righteousness and faith-based. Look, 
We're saved by grace. Nothing you can do can earn your salvation at all. It's a gift from God. But in view of that, we are invited to live a way that reflects God's life back into the world. So the standard of discipleship is to pursue Christ for the rest of eternity and become more fully ourselves and more fully like Christ in how we live. So over over the course of the next million years, as a person who's following Jesus, you should become more patient, (laughs) especially if you're living for a million years. You should be kind and full of joy. Do you, do you get what I'm saying? So Paul's, Paul's addressing an issue in the church. 2,000 years, years ago, people thought that they could follow Jesus and not allow their life to ex- be experienced or represent the things that Jesus represented. Now, what Paul says is that those things are improper for Christians because those things are connected to other deities. Are you with me? So Paul so stay with me just for a second. So I want to make sure, because he says in verse eight, check this out. We'll come back to verse three. For you were once darkness, not in darkness. You were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. For the fruit of light consists of goodness and righteousness and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. In other words, we don't have to make a list. All of us already know. We watch movies and TV shows all the time that reflect the very things that are in us. And it says this, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. That is why it said, wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. So you were once darkness, but now you are light. In other words, Christians live as children of light. So Paul is attacking these things that he finds in the first century church. And I want to just talk about these things and what's underneath them because the power that's underneath them is even more harmful than just the sin issues themselves. So Paul says there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality. There must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. Now, one of the problems with this passage, especially in the church for the last several years, is that we start the conversation about sex with thou shall not. And that is very unhelpful. Because I was told as a young kid, don't have sex, sex is bad, don't have sex, don't have sex, wait till you get married, wait till you get married, and then you get married, and now it's good. Turn it on. And that's what the church does. So I just wanna, I wanna go back and just give us a quick framework for sex and sexuality in Genesis chapter one. So if you have a Bible, go to Genesis one. We're gonna talk about sexual immorality, but I wanna, I wanna frame sexuality in Genesis because God created it. Verse 27. You guys with me this morning? It says this, verse 27. Um, God's creating the universe. On the sixth day, he creates mankind. Verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So male and female, both are created in the image of God, uniquely. Verse 28, I love this. God blessed them, and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. How do you increase in number? Sex is the answer. Let's put that billboard back up. Just kidding. Sex. So, and fill the earth and subdue it. So just pause there. Check this out. Rabbis say the very first command in the Bible is to have sex. You can have a field day. Yes, God created it. It's good. It's a gift. The point number one about sex is sex is good. It's not bad. We are sexual before we are sinful. God created it. 
It's, it's so that we can, we, can, we can be fruitful and increase in number. It's for procreation, but it's also for pleasure and building intimacy. And God designed it. It is really good. And your sexualness is part of your humanness. It's not the whole thing, which is what, where we run into problems today. We built our identity on our sexuality. That's not big enough. That's too small. It is important. And we can't just go over it as a church. We have to hold this intention and be willing to walk with people that are holding this intention and questioning and wrestling and struggling with their sexuality. But the first thing we need to know, and we'll talk more about that in a, sec- a second, is number one is sex is a gift and it's God's idea. Point number two in Genesis 2. Go to verse 24. This is so important. It says this, um, this the story of Adam and then uh, the second creation story, Adam, uh, it, God creates Eve out of Adam. He creates a woman out of man. Um, takes, it says in, in the, the original language, takes half of Adam. It's not a rib. It's literally half of Adam and creates Eve, and this woman. And, and, and it says in verse 24, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. And that word one is a cod. And it does refer to what happens in a marriage relationship, man male and female, coming together in a marriage relationship, and they're united as one. And that word one means a oneness made up of several different parts and members. And it refers to the act of sex, the, act, the covenant of marriage as well. And why is this important? Well, point number two is that sex is powerful. We see in Corinthians, Paul talk about this being pulled apart when you have sexual encounters with other people. Because there's a spiritual component to the physical reality of sexuality, of sex. And the safest, the only safe environment for sex to be expressed in all of its power is a covenantal marriage. Okay? That's the only place, according to the scriptures. So God is not a killjoy. When we come to church, we think God's a killjoy. I hear this all the time. God is not a killjoy. Um, and God desires for you to to thrive and experience fullness. And for those of us that get married, he, does, he wants us to experience the fullness of sexuality in our marriage because that's what it's designed for. Sex is powerful. That's why we create boundaries around them. Like electricity. Electricity is a good thing. Would you agree? We have lights. We have power. We, have my, we can straighten our hair if we need to straighten our hair or curl it or whatever. All sorts of good things come out of... I don't, I don't need to... <laughs> I don't straighten my hair. I don't need to. The secret is not out. <laughs> so, but we create boundaries around electricity. My son wants to play with the light socket. He does. He wants to put things in there. He wants to plug things in. And I say, bud, you can't do that yet. When you get older, you will use it. But for now, you're too young to understand the power and the protocol around electricity. Are you with me? Same is true with sex. And in fact, I just got to say that there's all sorts of implications. There's, I couldn't go into it. I just want to make this quick point. That the, the reason it's so powerful is beyond just the spiritual and the physical realities. There are neurological Um, hormones and chemicals released in sex that are addictive. Dopamine is released. Oxytocin is released. And vasopressin. Did I say it right? Where's Kim? Did I say it right? You're probably too smart. I'm just saying because she's the smartest person in the room. Um, But literally, there are chemicals that are released in our brain that bond us together, and, and scientists call it like glue, 
which is the scientific reason for when you have sex with somebody outside of marriage and you break up, it feels like you're being ripped apart because that's how it's designed to be. Oxytocin is what's released in women to bond them to their mates and vasopressin is what's released in males, part of testosterone. It binds us to them. So sex is a good thing. It's a gift. It's powerful. So we create boundaries around our sexuality. With that, let me just say this. I want to say it again. The church has far too long created statements or position papers about sexuality rather than invited conversations and enjoyed postures of love towards individuals. We have to posture ourselves as a community that's willing to get messy in the ordinary experiences of life that is our culture and embrace people where they are as they are just like Jesus does and let Jesus do with them what he's done for us. I, we don't want to be a church that builds positions against. We want to posture our hearts with love. Amen. Are you with me? So we have miles to go, bridges to build to marginalized community that have been told from the get-go. If I get one more email from somebody that is asking if they're welcome based on their sexuality, I'm, I'm going to lose it because why do they have to email a church to ask them if they are welcome into God's house? Of course! Of course they are. Otherwise, I'm not welcome because I'm the biggest sinner in our church. And if we make boundaries that say you can't come in because you're questioning or wrestling, we've already done Jesus' cross a disservice. Now, I know there are all sorts of other implications. And some of you are going to email me. Can I just say, if you want a clarifying definition, look to your own heart and say, do I make a position about your sinful condition? If knowing a position will help you love a person in sin greater, then yes, we'll give you a position. But will it? And what is God saying about your life? Is that, is that okay? We're walking in this messy road together. But with that, I have to, t this is what the text is saying. Is that okay? Because I want to be faithful to Ephesians 5. I was talking to Bill. I was talking to some of the mentors in my life about this text. I'm like, how do we walk through this? So if we have to be a safe enough place for people to question and wrestle with their identity, their sexuality. We have to hold that intention. Now, Ephesians 5, Paul says, not a hint of sexual immorality. The word pornea is referring to any sexual activity outside of covenantal faithfulness in marriage. Therefore, all sexual activity outside of covenantal faithfulness in marriage is seen as immoral. It's not, you should not participate in it. According to Ephesians 5, to what Paul's referring to. So any activity outside of covenantal faithfulness um, is sexual immorality. It's not proper for God's holy people. But also, I would argue that it's also referring to sexual infidelity or immorality found in marriage. Because you don't just get married and have a free-for-all. There, there, there is sexual immorality within marriage that's going on. And some of you have been abused by that. And so the, Paul is talking about the activity outside. And I just, I want to say, so we would love to create categories for it. Like, oh, I, I hear this all the time. Well, I'm not having, you're in a, a dating relationship and you say, I'm not having sex though. Oral is still sex. There are no other categories for sexual activity. All of it outside of covenantal faithfulness in marriage is sexual immorality. So that includes all petting and everything else. And we can go down the list, 
But Paul is saying none of that is appropriate for those that are in Christ. Remember, but you still are sexual. So that's a gift and you will have all sorts of energy and excitement around things. It's not a bad thing. But don't allow them to be used outside of marriage. This is the, the sexual ethic that Paul teaches in Ephesians 5. So what do we do with things like pornography? Brothers and sisters, pornography is rampant. Not, technically, 91% of all men in our, in our church are addicted or experiencing and using pornography. That's the, the nationwide statistic in the United States. And women, we can talk about women. And some of you are here and pornography has destroyed your marriages, has created a, a challenge in your marriage. And I just have to say, I have used in the past, I've been angry at people that struggle with this. And I've just been all week long moved with such compassion for my brothers in here and my sisters that struggle with pornography. Because nobody in here that uses pornography, after they use pornography, think, I feel more whole now. And we have to recognize that pornography, um, is there's no place for it for the people of God. And what pornography does is it reduces image bearers of the divine into body parts and it reduces sex into orgasm. In other words, it's not sexual enough. Pornography is not sexual enough. It's not big enough. And porn addiction in our church can be broken and you can walk in freedom. I, I want you to know that today if you're struggling. There are lots of us here that are struggling and fighting the cause and you don't have to think this is gonna be the way it is for the rest of your life. Can I just say that to you? There is restoration. But Paul goes on. It's not just sexual immorality. It says impurity. Impurity is uncleanliness. And it's not just about what you do. It's about the intentions and thoughts of your hearts and desires and passions. So anything that is impure that you willfully think of or crave that is outside of God's kingdom, outside of his life, is, is marked as sinful. And then he says greed. And it's not referring to money. Greed is the insatiable desire to acquire more. And what I think the problem is with these, this is mentioned all over the place, the triad of sexual immorality, impurity, and greed, is in the American church, we focus on sexual immorality while we have this giant log of greed in our lives. So we're so easy to point out the sexual preferences or identities of others, but we're not willing to address the greed that has been normalized in our culture like Artemis worship. Where we think it's okay to just consume and buy more and to build our lives around materialism, and to consume more media and social media and, and videos and binge off Netflix. Like, we, we think it's okay to immerse ourselves in a, we build churches around consumerism mentality. This is how we plan, this is literally, all the books on church planning are how to build a mass audience for consumption only, not to take on the world and bring culture, it's to survive culture. And so there are all these formulas to help you. So I think one of the problems we have is our, our, we're not willing to address that we actually have built our lives around and churches around un, unhindered desire for more. How are we doing? I didn't realize how heavy. I should have done a part two to the sermon. Hey, we're gonna just keep going through this and we'll pray at the end. Because, um, I mean... Most of us started at 9.30, would you agree? Most of us started at 9.30, so we'll just go to like, like 17 more, or 10 more minutes, okay, 10 more minutes. I just, I, I believe, like as I was preparing, I was like, I wanna do this text well. Because these three things we, we all struggle with, would you agree? It's not like we're, I'm not up here going, I've got it figured out. I, I was convicted all week long. And so 
What Paul says next is he, in verse four, let's just keep moving. There shouldn't be obscenity or foolish talk or, of course, joking. It's out of place, but rather with thanksgiving. So no self-centered talk or impure talk, but rather be, be a person of thankfulness. And remember, Paul's inviting you to live out of who you already are. This, we're, not, we're not challenging these habits and we're not creating behavior modifications because it earns us greater you know, notches on our belt or jewels on our crown. We, God's just gonna love us as we are, not as we should be, but we respond in an order that's proper for the calling we've received. But there's this, there's this part that really got me, and it's, and it's something that I really centered on this week. He says this in verse five. For this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy. So there are the three again. Such a person is an idolater. Highlight that part. Has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ or, and of God. So he says such a person is an idolater. So those of us that are regularly participating in sexual immorality or impurity or greed are idolaters, is what he says. Now, an idolater is someone who worships an idol, and an idol is an image or representation of a God used as an object of worship. I'll say an idol is anything that gives you identity, value, worth, or meaning outside of God. I want you to pause there. An idol is anything that gives you identity, value, worth, or meaning outside of God. N.T. Wright says this, you become like what you worship. When you gaze in awe, admiration, and wonder at something or someone, you begin to take on something of the character of the object of your worship. So Artemis worshipers began to operate their life like Artemis. Would you put that picture up of Artemis one more time? Do we have that? So everything that she represents would be seen in her followers. To the extreme, men castrating themselves as a form of unhindered worship to Artemis, sexual prostitution, prostitution in the temple courts, like men and women would just worship everything they had. They begin to take on the personality of their deities. And we as, as men and women who live in the 21st century, the question I have for us is where do you receive your identity, value, worth, and meaning outside of God? And I just have a, a list that I thought of in my own life. So I can find self-value, meaning, and worth uh, in and what I worship can be myself. It could be the need for fame, the approval of others, comfort and security. Now, what are the artifacts of comfort and security? Well, just look at your schedule. Is there anything in your schedule that makes you feel uncomfortable? Are you practicing hospitality to outsiders or not because that's not comfortable for you? That's not your personality type. There's two, self and comfort. <laughs> Do you guys see what I'm doing here? And so it goes on, sexuality, stuff. We, I mean, this is an obvious one, but when we work, there's power behind materialism and consumerism. Um, money, power, success. We can worship our family. We can worship our families we've come from, the families we have. Our kids be, can become idols in our lives. Is this not a struggle for some of us who find our identity solely as mom or dad? rather than being a child of God called to be a disciple maker of all nations. We allow our role of mother to umbrella the rest of our life. And now there are seasons where mothering is really all you could do and can do. And mothers in the room and fathers with little ones, not just because I'm about to have one, another little one, you have permission to have a season of just taking care of your family. That is the most important thing you can do, especially if you see that as raising up kids into wholeness and Christ-likeness. You have permission to, have, you, the, the village of the church should come around you and take care of you. Um, 
such a person is, a, is an idolater. He says, I, I want to ask you this question because this is where I really wanted us to go. There's power behind the object that you worship. Galatians 4 verse 3 says, so also when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. So what Paul's doing in Galatians is saying, look guys, when you weren't Christian, you were enslaved to other powers and deities. So you could say Artemis, that makes sense. But consumerism, self-worship, the approval of others, alcohol, sexuality, I believe there are spiritual forces, powers, and principalities operating in the world, and we just call it consumerism, but there is a power and a spiritual force that enables us to receive meaning, value, and identity from consuming, which is why dopamine is released when the Amazon package gets there. It's not just this little thing that's lifeless. There are demonic and spiritual forces behind it, enslaving you and bending you into its image. Let's skip that passage. Um, Go to Timothy Keller. Timothy Keller says this. In the Bible, therefore, turning from idols always includes a rejection of the culture that idols produce. God tells Israel that they must not only reject the other nation's gods, but you shall not follow their practices. There's no way to challenge idols without doing cultural criticism. There's no way to do cultural criticism without discerning and challenging idols. So he'll say, he'll continue on and he'll say, I'm not asking whether or not we have idols or rival gods. I assume we all do. They are hidden in every one of us. The question is, what do we do about them? How can we become increasingly clear-sighted rather than being under their delusional influence? How can we be free from our idols so we can make sound decisions and wise choices that are best for us and the people around us? How do we discern our idols? Paul, in other words, is saying in this passage, This is beyond behavior modification. This is about awaking ourselves up. We must awaken ourselves to the spiritual forces that want to enslave us into an alternate reality. We must awaken ourselves to the spiritual forces that that want to enslave us to an alternate reality. So Paul said, take off the old and put on the new. It's not just do away with sexual immorality. Put on a new reality of your life. It's not enough simply to recognize our idols. We have to replace our idols. So Ephesians 4 verse 28, it says this, anyone who has been stealing must no longer steal, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. In other words, you are using your hands and mind and skills for stealing. Don't do that behavior. Replace that behavior with working with your hands so you can give. Those of us struggle with the approval of others and social media is an addiction. Maybe it's time to give up social media and looking at what everyone else is doing and looking at the number of posts and likes we get so that gives us value and taking on a new behavior instead like maybe reading the Bible. Just throwing that out there. And that's silly, but but we're immersed in all sorts of alternative narratives. Why not be immersed in the narrative of scripture? Or if you struggle with pornography, Maybe it's time to break down where pornography exists in your life. So accountability software would be helpful. Maybe it's time to get rid of the the, the computer out of your room, out of your house altogether. I know people that leave their computers in their car and don't bring it in because they don't want to struggle with this condition anymore. 
Maybe it's time first to recognize you have an issue, to confess it to somebody to hold you accountable, to put accountability software on your computer, to um, no longer bring your computer or have internet access on yourself. Whatever it is, it's replace that behavior and then, and then take on something new. Maybe you take on a hobby. Go surfing, go work out. Change doesn't happen just because we confess. It happens because we begin to work on it. And this is what Paul's re- getting at, that we have to replace our idols. It might not be pornography. It might not be approval of others. It might be something else. My question for you, brothers and sisters, is what is your idol? I have so much more to share, share, but I need to end it. I have this whole section. Paul will call us to put to death the things, um, the evil desires and greed. He talks about that. The reality is this. We, uh, as as a people of God, need to, to learn how to replace our idols and allow God to be the center of our joy, center of our life. We have to replace our idols and plant something else there. As we uproot the idols in our life, we have to plant the, the reality of God in our life. Jesus, in other words, must become more beautiful to your imagination, more attractive to your heart than your idol. This is what will replace your idols from your heart. If you uproot the idol and fail to plant the love of Christ in its place, the idol will grow back. I'll, I guess this is what I wanted to say in view of everything we're sharing, I want you to learn how to love Jesus more. I want you to to know how loved you are by God, but I want you to learn how to love Jesus back, to allow your life to be in love with him. And some of you, that's so far off, right? We don't feel God's presence. We think he's distant. I I want our church to learn how to love the presence of God more than anything else. Because if we get that, then all the other things will become easy because there's nothing else that's gonna draw us other than the presence of God. We fall in love with Jesus and we learn how to replace those idols. It's more than just replacing, it's allowing the love of God to be our primary focus. So um, thanks for letting me process this. Are you, are you guys doing good this, this morning? So here's, here's what I, I wanna land. Number one, would you just identify your idols? I was doing this work this morning. I was just processing with God. What, where do I find meaning and worth? What are your idols? Number two, What's one way that you can replace them? It's one step. What's one, if approval of others and it's social media, stop social media for 21 days or something. It's pornography, it's accountability software. It's, if it's consuming, maybe just one day a week, you just don't buy anything out, right? Maybe, it's, it, maybe the first step is actually doing a budget and seeing where the money's going and seeing what your life look. I, so whatever it is, would you just write it down and then write down step one. Step one, doing a budget. Step one, accountability software. Step one, um, just cutting cold turkey from social media. Whatever it is, I just want to, I want to invite you to take a step towards wholeness. And then number three is fight this spiritually. You see, the problem is I could just give you a, ste- a bunch of steps on how to deal with your sexuality, how to deal with your impurity or your greed, but that's unfair to you because there are spiritual forces working against you in that area in your life and you have to fight the battle spiritually. That's why Paul will take us in Ephesians 6 into this whole spiritual warfare worldview. After Ephesians, we're gonna do a few weeks on spiritual warfare because this has become, a, I've become aware of this reality that we're not training disciples into battle mentality, which is what we need to do as disciples. There are powers and forces working against us that, are, have, that have spiritual implications for us. So I wanna invite you to receive prayer. In other words, uh, some of you are here 
and you're under the enslavement of addiction to pornography or alcohol or, or whatever it is, and that needs to be spiritually broken in your life. Set, you need to be set free by the power of the Spirit before you can enter into behavior modification and steps towards righteousness. Sound good? Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.